Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each kenny you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire. With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall, befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Well, the title of this morning's message is, What Can Make Me Whole Again? Some of you who are musically inclined, you will start to hum that the answer to that line. And the answer to that line, it's, it's, it's from a hymn, and we're going to sing that hymn as a hymn of proclamation today. But hopefully you will have an, a greater appreciation for the answer to that line and what it is, what is meant by the meaning of being made whole again. <clears throat> so let me give you an idea of, biblically speaking, what is going on with being whole again. Uh, so biblically, in re- it is speaking of a, a relational aspect. Being made whole again has the idea of being restored out of brokenness, out of alienation, and into a state of relational wholeness. So it's not something that is just kind of fluffy and you can't get your, your arms around it. In fact, it is something concrete. It deals with relational wholeness. And so we'll be taking a look at that today. And in fact, as we start to get our head around that, I wanted to pose some scenarios to get you realizing that we all have dealt with, we all have felt the sting of a lack of wholeness, maybe an alienation, a feeling of brokenness relationally. Let me give you, let me point you to some examples. Have you ever felt like a stranger in your own home? You felt like you were reduced exclusively to the role of cleaner or maybe provider? Or maybe you were reduced as a child to that inconvenient child that was just a nuisance in the way. Have you ever felt like you were an outsider at work? You felt like everyone else's work got noticed, 
but your work seemed to go unnoticed at best and criticized beyond. You felt like at work, your voice really didn't matter. You could show up or not show up during the day. On that any given particular day, your voice just didn't carry weight at work. Or how about, have you ever felt like an outcast within your friend group? You know the communications going out by text or uh, personal messaging or whatever it is, you're the mechanism of communication. Maybe it's the old-fashioned telephone. But you realize it's not going out to you within the friend group anymore. In fact, in, your, in the presence of your friends, you almost have the sense of being invisible because you notice that the conversation never quite turns to you. Just when you're ready to make that comment, it gets shifted to someone else, and you feel like, I'm really just an outsider in this group. I'm really alienated and distanced by my friends. Well, here's the thing. Because we live in a broken world, we will always feel or experience some level of brokenness, some level of relational brokenness and alienation. You cannot avoid it unless you are avoiding human beings. But if you are the covenant people of God, you can experience wholeness You can experience wholeness even in the midst of sadness because of the other relationships in your life that are broken. And you don't have to experience hopelessness because of the wholeness that our God gives us. We're going to take a look at this understanding. We're going to look at, look, we as Christians can know hopefulness while realizing the world has only hopelessness it faces. We can be the ones that know they experience a sadness that goes through to to the point of despair. We, in our personal relationships where we are feeling brokenness, have a sadness waiting for God's intervention in the midst, waiting for his perfect and timely intervention. It's not one or the other. It's both. That's the dynamic of the Christian. We can be whole and, yes, sense sadness and not have sadness overwhelm us because Christ has made us whole. Well, let's take a look at this. and Take, take your uh, bulletin. I want to make sure we understand um, our takeaway for today. And our takeaway is this. When your situation has you feeling broken alienated and losing hope and we do get overwhelmed and we do forget and we slide in that direction that's our old flesh pulling us that direction what are we called to do remember the blood of jesus that makes you and me as christians whole again remember that hold on to that those moments of sadness, the lie that Satan puts in our minds in the midst of the difficulty of relating to other people, our relationships, the betrayals we feel, the alienations we feel, hold on to this truth. You can be the light in the midst of the darkness in these situations. 
Well, let's start today by taking a closer look at the first step God took to make us whole again. We're going to take where the Bible is bringing us through a history of this plan of salvation. We're in Exodus, and we're, we're, we have the unveiling, the next step of progressive revelation occurring here. God is revealing how he is bringing about and plans to bring about. He's bringing it about in the uh, Israelite situation with, within the midst of an Egyptian nation. But we can learn from this and know how it actually points further down the road to Christ. So let's, let's take a look at the blood that marks Yahweh's covenant people. The blood that marks Yahweh's covenant people. Exodus 12, 7 through 11, it, it reads, Then they, speaking to the, about the Israelites, shall take some of the blood. It's speaking of the, the, the blood. Um, and the reason I had Mark back up and read verses 1 through 6 today is so that we would remember that there, there was a lamb that was cared for for four days, placed in the family's household uh, realm of love and holiness, and then after four days, think of the children asking, why does this lamb have to be killed? This, this is a cute little lamb. This has been our family little lamb that's been in our home, not out in our flocks. What, what's the significance? What's the importance? God has drawn the family into understanding the significance of this lamb that is to be sacrificed. And so it says, and then they, the Israelites, shall take some of the blood of the sacrificed lamb, in other words, and put it on on the two doorposts and the lintel. The lintel is the overhead crossbeam of the house in which they eat. They shall eat flesh. Don't get hung up with flesh and thinking, oh, they only ate the, the crispy, you know, whatever you, however you like your chicken or whatever it happens to be. It's not talking about that. When it speaks of flesh, it means the meat portion of it. So we think, that, just think meat. They shall eat the, the meat that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted <clears throat> its head with its legs up and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In the manner you shall, in this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. Let's take a look at this. I want to. I want to break it down. Normally, I take you line by line, and we just go over every little bitty word. I'm going to do this a little more um, from a, a little higher perspective than the right down in the in the grass because I want to come back and really focus on the blood. So we'll get all the aspects right, and then we're going to come really back and, and try and examine what is going on with the blood portion of this. So in verses seven through eleven. Three issues are addressed. The first issue in verse 7 is the substance and the location by which the Israelite households were to, were to be marked. How are they to be the marked? The substance with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Okay, we got that. The location is the household entry point. It's, you've got the two doorposts, uh, one on either side, and then you have the lintel, the crossbeam over the top. So we have this. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I remember hearing one time that, oh, it's... It, it, it demonstrates the, the cross when you do that. And I think that's Christians getting a little goofy. It doesn't demonstrate the cross, the picture of an, of an N, a square N. I mean, that doesn't picture that. But what it does picture, does picture 
the, the, the blood, and we're going to see that, but we don't, as Christians, want to get a little goofy in overextending our, our understanding of what's going on and, and take it too far. So let's see what is, we, we will look in a minute, I want to get to different aspects, what is going on with the blood in this fashion, this location? Why is it blood, and why is it at this location? But let's continue on into the other verses. First, the preparation of the food, and we're looking at verses 8 uh, through 11a, or the first half of 11. So the food was prepared in a way that differentiated it from that which was offered to the false gods of the Egyptians. That's what's going on with, don't do it raw. We don't want the blood in it. They would actually drink the blood. And God is saying, uh-uh. No drinking of the blood, not, not raw. And boiled took a longer process. The roasting was a quicker process that removed the bread, excuse me, the blood more, more quickly. So it was roasting. So it was, also, it was differentiated, and it fulfilled the, a purpose of quickly allowing the, the meat to be able to be eaten. We see that the, the food was also prepared with elements that reminded the Israelites of their oppression. And it speaks of the bitter herbs. And in order to understand the bitter herbs, we need to move backwards in our Exodus uh, book, in the passage that we've been reading. If you were to change back to Exodus 1, 12 through 14, so back to the first chapter, you'll understand that this, these bitter herbs were supposed to be eaten. They would make that terrible, bitter uh, uh, expression on their face. They would know the bitterness by way of the, the sense of it. They would have to continue to eat the bitterness of these herbs so that th- th- there was a sense of the, the fullness of, of what they had experienced before. You, you, your temptation when you take something bitter would be to spit it out. They're supposed to carry through with this to get the full experience of the bitterness, and that's what you went through, and to be reminded of that. And, and so in Ex- Exodus 1, 12 through 14, it states, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they, speaking of the Egyptians, in verse 13, ruthlessly made the people of Is- Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard, some versions have harsh service, in mortar and brick, identify how that service was, and in all the kinds of the work in the field. And then he goes for another all in all their work. They, were, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the herbs were designed for them to remember back the enslavement that they had, that they had at this oppressing, oppressing nation. Interesting enough, we're going to see that they're going to go out into the wilderness and they're going to forget this very quickly. And they're going to recategorize it as, oh, let's go back where everything was great. We had cucumbers. We had all of these wonderful things back then. No, you didn't. You, you're creating a false narrative in your mind. And this bitterness was supposed to, the, the, the taking that in in this meal is supposed to remind them, don't ever let yourself get to a place where you remember this incorrectly. Not only is this going to be something that is a symbol, it is going to be something that you experience by taste, by the expression on your face, by ugliness of having to to continue to eat, chew it, and then eat it and consume it. It was a part of who you are. Do not forget this, because then you will forget and appreciate, you will forget and degrade your understanding and no longer appreciate what God had done for them. And lastly, we see the food was prepared so that it, was, it set the pace of the meal as being in a state of hurriedness, 
Got to get through this. There's a hasteness and readiness. That's what's going on with this pace. We, we see the, the belt fastened. We see the sandals on the feet. They didn't, the sandals were by the door. They, the sandals shouldn't be on the, on the feet. They're eating it uh, um, in, in, with the idea that at a moment's notice, we got to go. And the, the last idea is with staff in hand. Interesting. When I eat, I like to have both hands free. Do you see the visual? They, it would be clumsy for them to be eating with staff in hand because it would be awkward. And if they were the child or the woman that didn't have the staff, they would see the clumsiness laid out by, by their, the father figure, the, household, the head of the household, and see that this is a constant reminder. He, he's eating with his staff. There is no meal we do this with. This is a unique meal. This is a meal that is, is causing them to remember and take heed of what this means. But we continue on in the last part of 11, uh, it, sometimes referred to as 11b or the second half of 11. We see the declaration of the authorship of the Passover. It is a, a Passover of Yahweh or Yahweh's Passover. The, the significance there is that it is from start to finish the Passover, what has led to it, what is it is about in the meal, what it's symbolizing in the meal, and what it will mean as to what actions we're going to see take place by, by God himself. It is all God's doing. Give no credit to the false gods. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is authorship that is exclusive to me, Yahweh. So we understand that there can be no, so no later version of, well, I think it was the God of this from, from Egypt. No, this was all Yahweh's work. So now we have an, we have an overview of what's going on in this particular uh, section of our passage. Let's go back to the blood and dig a little bit deeper to understand the blood because that's really what we want to understand this week. So we, we want to consider two things to ponder regarding First, the, the placement of the blood on the doorway. And there is significant to the placements. There's different understandings of it. The Bible gives us more than one understanding. The one I want to, take, uh, to point you to today is from archaeology. I want to take you to the ancient Near East. I want to let you know what's going on in the ancient Near East that would give, hopefully, more significance to the location of where the blood was, put, was placed. This is, this is designed to come alongside the understanding of what we're going to talk about next. I don't want you to see that, uh, that uh, something outside of the Bible, our understanding of the history or the culture going on, is somehow supersedes that uh, of the theological context. It's not that. It's coming along and giving us a better understanding. So as we understand what goes on in the ancient Near East, let me read to you this uh, from one of the uh, sources that I was looking at. It says, excavations at Amamra, Amara, yeah, I think that's better. Um, have revealed that during the New Kingdom, the Egyptian New Kingdom age, which started about 1570 BC, so it predates. That means that it's going on at the time of of the the Exodus. Our Exodus is somewhere along the time frame of 1445 BC. So this predates it. So this is a, something that's happening. So everyone within the, the uh, Egyptian culture would be aware of this, including the Hebrews would be aware of this because they live, unfortunately, as slaves, but they live within the culture. We learn later that they even assimilate the gods, the false gods 
of the Egyptians into their own understanding of their God. That's one of the reasons why he takes them out into the wilderness and lays down the law and says, uh, this is the way you're going to relate to me. This is who I am and this is how you relate. Get rid of all that synchronicity, all that synchronizing of, of the other gods out of your system. I am only... I am the one and only God. I will have no other of their systems in, in, in your worship of me. So listen to this. Excavations at Amorah uh, have revealed that during the new kingdom, aristocrats. So what's an aristocrat? An aristocrat is, a, is someone who is part of the ruling members of a society. So if you're part of the, of the ruling membership or the bodies, the, the institutions that, that, that uh, rule your, your culture or your or your um, where you live, your society, then you are referred to as an aristocrat. The aristocrats advertise their ownership of their houses by having their names painted in brightly colored hieroglyphs on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. So if you want to know who was big, bad, and important, who the rulers were, you just looked at their homes, and their homes had it laid out, interesting, the doorposts and the lintels exactly what we see Yahweh's telling the people, his people, to do with their doorposts. So we can see, we can take from that, we can extract to that there an understanding that Yahweh is tangibly marking out his own people. You want to know who my people are? Right here. They're going to have the blood of the lamb on their doorways, over their doorways. He, he even said he prophesied earlier that he was going to do something in taking his people to be his own. Listen to this from Exodus 6, 6 through 7. This is Yahweh instructing Moses. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's a... That's a, a a picture of a strong arm and with great acts of judgment think plagues I will take you to be my people and I will be your God Yahweh is graciously letting them know you are my people you can look at this the blood that I told you to put over the, the entryway of your door and on the side post of your door and you can be reminded. You want a, ter- a tangible reminder? You're questioning whether or not you are the, the, the people of Yahweh, this God who you have not seen, this God who is doing these incredible acts of judgment. You, you, would you not want to be his? Yeah, you can, you can know that you are his by marking it in obedience to what he has called you to do. So he is making it known. We see that Yahweh's directive to have his people mark the, the entry of their homeway was a means of showing the Israelites that Yahweh was the ultimate aristocrat. He is the one true only aristocrat in the economy of the whole world. It's not, it's not him boasting of his name It's him boasting of who he is and letting them know you are mine. I have taken you for possession. You talk about a sense of belongingness. This is the God who has brought this level of destruction. 
And he does it in blood, not cute hieroglyphs. The blood, and when you sign your name in blood, it carries a, a seriousness of it to it. It is a life and death situation. And not only is it a life and death situation, it's, it's, it's far-reaching nature says this life and the life beyond is where this has significance. You are mine. You are my people. You can know a sense of wholeness, a sense of belongingness. I have tangibly shown you that you are mine. And that is the most important relationship you need to get your head around as a people of God. Don't be intimidated by this world power, Egypt. I am the one that is bringing Egypt to its knees. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who is outside of creation and has complete control over creation. So what's our application to this today? How, what do we take from that, the significance of what, the, the, the fact that it was blood, the blood of the sacrificed lamb, and it was put over the doorpost? Well, the oppression placed upon you by others or by your sin itself, we're all battling sin, has no say over your value. The, the oppressor will try and tell you you have no value. You may be in a, in a relationship of oppression. You may be influenced by others that are, that are trying to oppress you. In some ways, there are so many ways relationally that people can oppress one another. You can know in the midst of that relationship that you have value, regardless of what the value the oppressor is trying to communicate to you because your relationship is ultimately anchored in your relationship to God, the God, the creator, God who is the one who is above and beyond all that he has created. You are valuable because you are marked out by God as his covenant people. It's not just that you are his people. He has entered into a covenant, a promise that he cannot break because he does not lie. There is no deceit in him. He is faithful to keep the covenant. Remember that. Sometimes we, we lose that in today's culture. I remember as a Christian growing up, I don't even know how many times I heard the, the word covenant in the first 20 years of being a Christian. It just, it just didn't make the sermons. It wasn't something that they were talking about in my circles. And yet the covenant is so important. It makes a statement on, though I fail, he is faithful. You may not feel in the midst of your difficulty a sense of belongingness. You may feel the brokenness of that, that horizontal relationship you, have, you come under each day. But you can know that he is faithful and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You belong to the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of who's cool in school, not the kingdom of who's going up the corporate ladder, not the kingdom of, uh, of even in Christian circles, who's got the coolest gifts of the Spirit. No, not, not, that, not just, uh, in, in using my last example, not that sense of an understanding. You are members in the kingdom of God, and by being a part of the kingdom of God, whatever God has you doing in his kingdom is significant and important to him. It's his kingdom. 
He rules it. He is the ultimate aristocrat who rules it perfectly with perfect justice. There is no greater privilege of belonging. But all that is based on whether or not you are a Christian. If you are not a Christian, you don't get a pass. All your moral acts count for nothing. It's the relationship that brings you from a place of brokenness to a place of wholeness. No relationship, no wholeness. We need to remember. That means no, no relationship, no wholeness. That means you are part of the kingdom of darkness. And you have reason to, de- to despair. You have reason to feel broken and weighted down by your situation. In fact, God will use that weighted downness to convict your heart. There's got to be more than what this world, this kingdom of darkness has to offer. Well, let's now take a look at the second thing we need to ponder. Not only are we pondering the location of the blood at the entry and the fact that it was a a statement of possession, we are possessed by Yahweh. Not only was it a statement of, of belonging, we have belongingness, but now let's look at the second thing to ponder, and that is that the blood was a visible sign of the act of atonement. It's the visible sign of an act of atonement. Let's read this. Exodus 12, 12 through 13. He says this. This is Yahweh saying this. So, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. He's going to strike everything in the land of Egypt. He, this is the first plague that, is, that affects the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. They didn't get a pass. The tenth plague is opened to everyone who lives in the land of Egypt. Let's continue this. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. If you have ever met, I'll say it this way. My theology was, was such that I never had the right understanding until of late in the last maybe 10 years of the spiritual warfare that goes on. We've talked about that, that Exodus is a polemic. It's an argument. It's an attack on the false gods, the fallen angels of this world that want to be worshipped by God. They are the puppet masters. They're the ones that, that have, that are moving the strings of flesh and blood to have a, the wickedness of their kingdoms prevail over the, the other kingdoms of the world. When you are armed with that, then you come to this and you don't walk past this as, oh, these just, this is all the superstition stuff. This is all the, the goofy mythology that the Egyptians have, and I'm sure that this is some of the assimilating process, that the, the synchronism that was happening as far as they were, the, you know, the, the uh, Israelites sinking, allowing to come into their own faith, this wrong understanding. Oh, no. No, 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 no. This is not myth. This is not mythology. This is God saying it quite clearly. He says this, And on all the gods of Egypt, it would be understood and implied all the false gods of Egypt. All of those that have fallen from the heavens, they have said they do not want to be the angelic realm that stays righteous and loyal to God. They want the human realm to worship them as we were called to worship God. These are the false gods that are pointed to. And on all the gods of Egypt, 
I will execute judgment. You get a sense of what this is a cosmic battle that is going on simultaneously with the battle that we're seeing played out in this with this Egyptian nation and Pharaoh trying to say, oh, no, these are my people. And God's saying, oh, no, these are my people. These are my covenanted people. It says this, and, I, and when I see the, let me, let me continue on. The, the blood shall be, no, sorry about that. Uh, continuing on, uh, it says this, I am Yahweh, and then in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. He didn't say the blood will be a sign for me. Yahweh isn't going out and into the, the land of Egypt and going, oh, whew, I see there's, there's blood there. They're mine. I, not, I didn't know that beforehand. Man, that blood just, whew, I almost was going to, you know, take a life here. Good thing they, they got it nice and dark and thick and it, wasn't, it was right over the top. It's not that. The sign isn't for him like he doesn't know. The sign is for you, Israelites. In, in this sense, the sign is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. A physical symbol of a spiritual reality for them to, to, to grasp and hold on to. And let me continue on. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed in your place, in other words, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The sign of the blood was a sign designed to teach the Israelites, listen to this carefully, that a death had already taken place. He's trying to get them to realize what atonement is. The word atonement isn't in here. He's trying to give them the concept of atonement by what they are doing. You had to kill the lamb. I am going to pass over you because of the life of that lamb is demonstrated over the threshold. Therefore, when I see it, I see a death. Somebody has something, in this case, a lamb, has atoned for you or has satisfied the wrath, my perfect godly wrath, that which you deserve because of your sinfulness, has been satisfied by another's death. They were being taught to understand atonement by what they did and where they did it and how they cared for the animal, and what that animal meant. Don't get lost in the word fallacy concept that says, if you don't see the word in the Bible, then the concept isn't there. This is a perfect example of that's hogwash. It's there in its fullness. And we're going to understand, and we're going to look at that further. The death of the lamb stood as a substitute death. So the Israelite household was passed over. Death already occurred so that death doesn't happen to me and my household is the takeaway the death of the sacrificial lamb was sufficient to satisfy the punishment required for the people i said people and you and hopefully you're going well nick this said firstborn you're right it does say firstborn but let's think like the israelites were thinking this is about the death of the firstborn in all of the families but what did god say back in in uh exodus 4 Israel is my firstborn son. 
He's talking about the whole nation. He's giving a context of a very confined, he's dealing with the firstborn, and he's going to build that, he's going to continue to uh, unfold or unpack that as we walk through the Exodus. But you can't lose track of the fact that, in a greater sense, we are all part of the firstborn. We all stand judged and should be condemned to death, but for the blood of a sacrificed lamb. The spotless lamb is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Well, let's now do a hyperlink. Let's, let's, let's race forward to the New Testament and see if we can see this borne out by the writers. Did the writers, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, get this right? This concept of atonement by the lamb and that atonement being enough to cause the passing over of, of, of death on us. And it's not a physical death that's passed over. It's a spiritual death, an eternal death. So let's take a look at this. If you, and some of you like to write down the verses. I'm going to say them rather quickly. You won't have time to, to, to turn there, but if you want to write them down, that's fine. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says, hey, I'm not going to let you get, not, you guys miss this. I'm going to explicitly say it. If you didn't get it, now you're going to get it. Christ was the Passover lamb that was first introduced way back in Exodus. 1 Peter 18, 19 says, you were, this is Peter now, we've got a different writer. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or, or blemish, or defect is the idea, is blemish. Uh, the, and then on Romans 5, 9, we're back to Paul. We have now been justified by his blood. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews, half the church believes that Hebrews is written by Paul. The other half of the church says we're not sure. So wherever you land on that argument, this potentially could be a different writer. This could be Paul again. Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his blood. Oh, now we're starting to see an idea of a cleansing. There's not just the, the idea of atonement. There's also cleansing tied to it. That's helpful to us impure believers who not only have a sacrifice that was made for us once and for all, but that blood through our relationship to him continues to purify us as we walk in sanctification, as we walk desiring to be transformed. And finally, 1 John 1, 7 says this, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Praise be to God. So let's finish with the application here. This is the overarching application. We talked about wholeness and what wholeness is. Let's walk this through till we get to the point of wholeness. I want you to be able to leave and never fall to pray to the, to the lie that you are nobody, you are an outsider, you are an outcast, that you, have a, you can be alienated, and that you are of little value. Because all of those are absolute lies we need to be reminded of. So in our application, it's the, the blood of Jesus that ultimately marks us as God's saved, or in our case today, God's passed over people. It's the blood of Jesus that has made you relationally whole with God. 
no longer broken, no longer lacking anything, no longer being alienated in any way as it relates to God. The world will certainly do it to you, but as it relates to God, you lack nothing. Others' oppression or alienation cannot force an identity on you. Those of you who either have or are in a relationship of oppression, that identity that is trying to be conveyed to you by the oppressor cannot be forced on you because of your identity in Christ. Hold on to that truth. No matter how difficult it gets, hold on to that truth. Your identity is in your belongedness, who you are in Christ, because of Christ, you are part of the kingdom of light. No matter the oppression you you go through here on this earth. You have been saved out of this broken world. Now, this is a hard one to get your head around. You have been saved out of this broken world. And you say, hey, Nick, I'm still in this world. Yeah, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. You have been saved out of this world, this world's condemning, despairing worldview, the lens by which they view everything and they try and force it on you. You have been saved out of this broken world. Therefore, Christian, you can love. And you can even start to love the oppressor like the martyrs do. That's a hard one. You might need a whole lot of coming alongside to do that. But you can love those that even oppress you in a sense of understanding that you are waiting for God to do his intervening work, hopefully, for their salvation or for their transformation. Sometimes even Christians oppress. And you're waiting patiently, trusting in God's perfect work and God's perfect timing. That's what love looks like. It doesn't mean, please don't hear this, if you are in an oppressive relationship and you are being physically hurt, it doesn't mean that that's okay. I'm not saying that. That's the church's role, to come alongside you, to help educate, to to bring about a change and transformation in that relationship. I'm not saying that you have to stay there and and be in that dangerous place, but what I am saying is God has given you the means, i.e. the church, to bring you to a place where hopefully, if that person is a believer, there is transformation in that relationship. You have your hope of relational wholeness grounded in the blood that Jesus shed for you. Value the blood, capture, gain the understanding of your wholeness. Devalue the blood and your wholeness goes by the wayside. Your hope is sure because it's grounded in the blood of Jesus. Your hope is sure, not because I'm up here preaching it, because God already preached it by way of his revealed word. That's why you can be made sure of this. God has made known to you, not by a sign. They had a sign. He didn't make known to you by a sign, but by an act from his son, Jesus Christ. He has made it known to you. We have the sureness of this. We will be forever relationally whole. Nothing can take that wholeness away from us. Forever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
That relational wholeness is always there. Now we start to understand some of the, the old black spiritual hymns. As they are being enslaved, as they are doing the harsh work in the fields of this nation, they are singing the old black spirituals that always look for the life after. They would sing it because it was an audible reminder to themselves and it was a reminder to those around them the truth of, of who God is in the midst of their oppression. They awaited with patience the, the life after, knowing that this life was probably going to be devoid of a wholeness with anyone outside of their realm. They had the, um, the, in, the incredible oppression on their lives. We need to be reminded of that at times. Some of the black spirituals are some of the most amazing hymns that are sung because these are people in our, in our contemporary, as much as it can be contemporary, sense of what we, what, what we as a nation experienced as far as that whole idea of oppression. And Let's continue on. Here's the thing again. I said this in the beginning. I'm going to end with this. I said this in the opening before we got to the passage. I want you to hear it again and see if you processed it now that you've listened to the sermon. Because we live in a broken world, we will always experience some level of relational brokenness and alienation. You cannot get around it. You live in a world full of sinners. Sinners oppress. Two, but if we are God's covenant people, we can experience sadness without having to experience hopelessness. I didn't tell you, oh, you're, you're demonstrating sadness. You're not a real believer. You can't experience that and be a believer. No, no, no. This is both. You can experience the sadness of the brokenness of the earthly relationships you have, and you don't have to experience hopelessness because your, your, your belongingness, your wholeness, is in Christ Jesus and the work he has done. And then let me end with this. In fact, we can actually experience a sense of wholeness while also experiencing a sense of of sadness over the brokenness of the world that invades our life, but it is a sadness that seeks God's perfect and timely intervention. Don't tell anyone that they don't have a right to feel the sadness. That's not ours to say. We have a right to remind them of the truth that even in the midst of the sadness, they can know they are whole. They can know that they are not broken. They can know that they lack nothing. You and I lack nothing in our relationship with God. And we can go into that difficult situation knowing that our God can do the work that he did in our hearts and to the one that has oppressed us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of this. We thank you that you have made it real to us. We know the truth of the scriptures. They only knew a sign in the Old Testament of what was, was, was pointing forward to the, the, the spiritual reality that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And therefore, I am made whole in the presence of my God. And I wait and I long for and I hope for with expectation the fullness of that truth in the life to come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.